0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 11th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests, political scientists, Alex Kina and Tony Smith, discern the political seismic shifting under our feet in their latest book, Gerrymandering the States, Partisanship, Race, and the Transformation of American Federalism, soon out in Cambridge University Press. And now, on to our interview. My guests for the full hour are an ensemble of political scientists, Alex Kina and Charles Anthony Smith. Tony Smith was last on this show last August, calling in advance the announcement of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate, Alex Kina was on previously with Michael Latner, who's unable to attend this interview. But Alex and Michael were previously on in what then seemed a dizzying situation with a map drawing topic of October 2019. However, we're at a much more consequential juncture, which they'll break down in all its complexities and looming consequences when we're talking about their book out this August entitled gerrymandering the states, partisanship, race, and the transformation of American federalism. So first we have Alex Keena. He's an assistant professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University. His research focuses on political representation, the U.S. Congress and elections. He is co-author of Gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, and the future of popular sovereignty. This is required reading for geeks. The title for the August release book will also be required reading for geeks. And I'm hoping a much broader audience that are noticing that the press simply is not covering district mapping news like I would like. And so this is going to be sort of the magazine draft of what's at stake here. So finally, but not least, is Charles Anthony Smith, he's UCI professor of political science, focusing on law and legal institutions, US politics, international law, comparative law, grounding his research in the contestation of overrights in the U.S. and in the global international, the all-around unifying theme of how law and legal institutions fulfill or inhibit rights. Every time my cage gets rattled over district mapping drama, I call on these gentlemen. I'm so glad they're available today. We are recording this interview on May 7th. Alex Kina comes to us today from Richmond, Virginia, and Tony Smith from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Alex Kina and Tony Smith.
1: Thanks,
2: Brad. Thank you so much for having us. I also want to point out uh, that our fourth co-author is Tony McGann, who lives in Scotland. He's at Strathclyde University, and is many ways, the backbone of our gerrymandering team here. We're very excited that our second book on gerrymandering is coming out of Cambridge University Press.
0: Yes, and I have in my introduction, I did want to bring up, thank you for making sure Alex McGann's, we bring him into this project, although he's just not available for the interview twos today. So congratulations on this latest achievement. I just don't envy you in dealing with the breaking developments. So when our pen's up, when you can't write anything down, despite the fact that we keep having breaking news with rollouts of the census data and changes in the number of congressional districts in every state. So when does this book get set to print? When are pens coming up, gentlemen?
1: I don't know. I would love if the book was out right now. But this is a topic that is so, so important. And I think you're right. I don't think that the public truly grasps the implications of redistricting and how important it is for our democracy And so we're excited to be able to weigh in on this and talk about this at a time when our legislatures and our state governments around the country are gonna start revising the election maps that will dictate who will represent us at such an important time.
0: Tony?
2: I was gonna follow up and say, the book uh, is actually, you can pre-order it right now. It will actually be out right at the beginning of uh, August and barring any sort of supply chain issue, but it looks like it will actually be out in August. But the thing is, the fundamental dynamics and understanding of the politics, the math, the demographics, and how maps are drawn, that doesn't change day to day based on what the news cycle is. And in fact, if you went through the book with us, you would get a pretty good idea of what we expect to see happen in the fall and into the spring after the districts are redrawn.
0: I follow that point. And so I did get to look over the book, of course, but I just want to know if part of, not to take away from book sales, but to to sort of, uh, let's say, to bring, to draw people to the book, though, do you have in your package of projects to push this out in editorials in like a, a monthly journal yeah. kind of thing like the atlantic or the new yorker or something or terry right. after me
2: we just published a column in the washington post in the monkey cage about it and then several days ago fair vote Stacey abrams organization in georgia got in contact with us and asked for a early copy of the book and want us to give a presentation to them so we're anticipating making the rounds mike is closely affiliated with this
1: with Union of Concerned Scientists now for a couple of years, and anybody's ever heard of this organization or not? Oh, yes. uh, they started in the 60s or 70s. Their thing was nuclear proliferation. But recently, in the last decade, they realized that democracy was kind of important um, because they didn't see a lot of traction when it came to climate change and these issues that a lot of natural scientists have been promoting for a long time. What happened is they realized that democracy and polarization affected their policy propositions quite a bit. And so they started to think, well, what's going on here? And so Mike was part of that, their effort to, to find somebody to look into voting rights and look into how democracy functions. And so Mike has been working with the Union of Concerned Scientists for a couple of years now, doing work on gerrymandering, but also sort of outreach stuff in promoting our work to the general public.
2: And we take this project not just as an academic or scholarly pursuit, but actually as one that's critical to the survival of democracy over time. When we first started working on the first book, we went to a competition about how to come up with better democratic processes to, to battle gerrymandering through common cause. And we met Emmert Bondurant, who's one of the original voting rights activists uh, and lawyers from really the 50s and 60s. Wow! And we have constantly pushed out the importance of this gerrymandering The lawsuit that the Supreme Court declined to engage the question of partisan gerrymandering in had lots of amicus briefs filed with it. And the amicus brief filed by John McCain and Rod Brown primarily rely on our first book in its advocacy for the court to strike down superpartisan gerrymandering unsuccessfully because the court decided they couldn't figure it out. And John Roberts apparently referred to our book as gobbledygook. Uh, in the discussion. But we're very cognizant that this is an issue that is not easily interpretable by the voting public. It seems complicated. There are ways we can talk about it that make a lot of sense. So when you say politicians shouldn't pick their voters, voters should pick their politicians, everyone instantly understands what we mean. But the technology behind the ability to create a partisan advantage goes beyond what most people think of or care to learn. It's beyond salience level in some real ways. So we're out there banging the drums and talking to everybody we can and trying to get everybody to understand that gerrymandering is a critical threat to democracy. And this book takes a step past the first book, which was about congressional gerrymandering. correct, And looks at the state legislative level gerrymandering because ultimately the state legislature's have a tremendous sway and actually outright draw the districts in many states.
0: Indeed, indeed, you were talking all of you about people that are now joining in on—they're sort of new to the game of addressing the gerrymandering sort of reach here. And I'll bring up the sort of who's been working the long game more effectively than the is a little bit shorter game. But first, let's just make sure everybody knows what the definition of gerrymandering is. We're going to fly. 20 feet over the and we're going to keep going back, back, back to up to 70,000 feet level at the end of the interview about the sort of the fixes and the trajectory. So a quick, you're uh, on the envelope, your elevator. What is gerrymandering definition?
1: Alex, you want to take that one? Sure. So gerrymandering, it has to do with the way that we elect members of Congress or state legislatures to represent us. So I think that if you live in another country, it would be a very strange concept. But most other countries, they have like a parliament, and they have proportional representation where they go on election day, and they vote for a party. And a party sends a certain number of of its members to parliament, depending on how much support they got in the general public. Well, in the United States, we don't really do that. We elect people. And the way we've done it mostly is that we have a sort of localized representation where we vote for a person to represent our geographic area. And, you know, there's a debate over whether this is a good way to structure democratic representation. We won't get into that, but what happens is the problem is you need to draw where those geographic areas are. And so every so often, at least recently, state governments have to go. And when the population figures are updated, with every 10 years with the US Census, they have to go and they have to redraw the boundaries of these election districts that determine who gets represented by whom. Now the problem, with gerrymandering is refers to using those boundaries to achieve some sort of political or personal goal it isn't necessarily always to help your political party out sometimes it could be to help members who are already in power to stay in office you can gerrymander in a way to make sure that that democrats and republicans alike are safely reelected that happens in new jersey by the way where the elections aren't particularly competitive at least in congress so everybody ends up winning there might be like one seat that's actually competitive or you can gerrymander for other reasons uh, there's this f- example of a Maryland Democrat wanting to have the University of Maryland in his district. So he asked the governor who drew the maps to loop the campus in College Park, Maryland, into his particular district, which wasn't really even close to College Park. So it's just sort of shenanigans that occur in the decision-making process of drawing those boundaries that determine who's representing whom.
0: And I did interview two of the redistricting commissioners for California. And there's even identity. There's an identity of voter with their district. And they've talked about, well, Long Beach, you know, folks not in California, Long Beach doesn't There may be a border incorporating parts of Long Beach into a Orange County congressional district. So there was a definite feedback that redistricting commissioners were getting about where people want to be a part of their district and with their fellow constituents. There's that, too. But folks, when you're listening, you can hear in Alex Kina's relay. This is not an elevator speech concept. It's so much more complicated. So we're going to keep in the simplest of ways to express what's going on, uh, the dynamics, and the consequences, of course. So, or Tony, did you have something to add to that elevator? Do you have a shorter elevator speech?
2: Well, the for me, the real short elevator speech is gerrymandering is when politicians pick their voters rather than voters picking the politicians. They may have different motivations, as Al talked about, sometimes it's incumbent protection, sometimes it's industry protection, sometimes they're trying to cluster certain groups of citizens, but it's always pernicious in some way because it isn't primarily driven by what's in the best interest of the voters. It's in what's in the best interest of the politicians as the main metric of consideration.
0: And so like what Tony was saying earlier is that the die has been cast for at least, a, you could say almost a couple of decades. There's an asymmetry that the grand old party, the Republicans have been very involved in the long game. They've been building, building, building this advantage Increasingly, with lower on the ballot participation, to get legislators to map the congressional districts and then eventually also the state districts. So the Democrats are sort of involved in a shorter game, always looking at the next election around the corner, not necessarily looking at making sure down ballot. Participation fortifies their hand, you know, electorally. And when I interview people in the last cycles, the last two cycles, and I ask them, what are you all doing about down ballot participation? And they always came up short, but the down ballot participation is a big driver of what makes the GOP so successful in the long game of institutionalizing this gerrymandering advantage.
2: So uh, let me suggest that the long game is even longer than you've suggested. If you go back to the creation of the country, we end up with a minority rule preference in two significant ways. Uh First, the Senate is primarily a minority rule preference institution. So somebody in Wyoming has two senators representing them. And I've been told there are more elementary school kids in Orange County and LA County combined than there are people in Wyoming. And they get two senators, but they gotta split, the kids get two senators, but they gotta split them with everybody else in California. And then if we look at the Electoral College, the Democrats in order to prevail in the Electoral College have to overperform. They can't just win, they have to win by four or five points. And the same is true in the Senate. It has to be a landslide for the Senate to shift away, your down ballot observation is really important. And I think that you see intermittent efforts by the Democrats to address this. You've got a very old school cluster of Democrats that were around when they talk about how great Tip O'Neill was being Speaker of the House, but they forget that he had a supermajority. So, or Lyndon Johnson, it's really easy for him to pass legislation. Why can't Obama pass legislation? And the reason is, super majorities. So as the country has shifted around a bit and changed and the parties have coalesced around a lot of things. So up until Trump, there wasn't really a dispute about whether trade was a good thing. No one, except for a few of these crazy people in the house say we should be on the gold standard that we have basically converged on a lot of issues among the parties. So the parties separate over other kinds of things that are frequently culturally driven. So if you look at somebody like Stacey Abrams and the effort that her operation took, it was to exactly address that down-ballot situation. If you look at what Beto O'Rourke is doing in Texas, it's the exact same thing. And while they fell short repeatedly in Texas, they have moved people, uh, districts that every Republican won by 10, 12, 15 points, they're now winning by two or three points, and demographics may make up that shortfall later on. And if you look at states like Virginia, which used to be red, and then it was purple, and now it's looking pretty blue, you can see that the way you overcome that institutional advantage is through activism, registration, get out the vote efforts, and demographics.
0: Engagement's the big through line. Yes, I'm sorry.
1: I would add to what Tony's saying that I don't necessarily believe that the Republicans redistricting control and their success in state legislatures has necessarily a lot to do with grassroots activism in focusing on down, down ballots. It has a lot to do with luck. The only reason, one of the main reasons at least that the Republicans are in a position where they control several more state governments than Democrats do, are because they happen to do very well in 2010. And for those of your listeners who, uh, who were adults or can remember the climate of 2010, this is when we see, start to see the birth of the Tea Party and you see this backlash against healthcare.
0: And, and, the, birther, of quite, the, birther
1: and the birther movement. And quite frankly, a lot of this was because President Obama was Black. And it angered a lot of whites in the middle of the country. And that happened to be the election that decided who would control state government when the maps were being drawn in 2011. And so the Republicans got lucky because no president really does well in the first midterm election after they're elected. Um, and they had a very potent message for a group of people that uh, were, you know, angry about a number of things. And it provided it was the perfect timing. And so they used that control in 2010 to draw district maps that were pretty extreme, pretty aggressive gerrymanders in a number of states. And it essentially means that there's no chance that Democrats will ever take those those state governments back, even when they win the majority of votes, they have to win, as Tony mentioned, in the context of the Senate, they have to win by a landslide. And so, you know, if you look at Wisconsin, for example, that the Republicans take two out of the three seats in this General Assembly, even though the Democrats won a majority in 2018, they still managed to only win a third of the seats for grabs. And so...
0: And that's um, not the only state. Pennsylvania's been like that. North Carolina's been like that too. So uh, just just let me let our listeners know, for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are political scientist Alex Keena from Virginia Commonwealth University and Tony Smith from UCI about their latest work and what's going on, the latest book in collaboration with Michael Latner and Alex McGann. The book is entitled, Gerrymandering the States, Partisanship Race and the Transformation of American Federalism published by Cambridge University Press, but look for editorials that are related and prop this book up as sales are sales are certainly open. So, so back to Alex was setting up the setting um, for the luck that broke in 2010, but I think the long game was already in place. There was some really good kinds of institutional coalescing that made the stoking all the more invigorated in 2010 for the legislative races in that year to go and map out
2: a really, a huge- but, So I, I wanna I want to reiterate what Alex just said. You can't underestimate how important it is to have a really good year, the year it's a, a redistricting year. Yes. And that's what happened with the Republicans. And this may happen with them again, but maybe not. Uh, the Republicans do seem to be at war with themselves a little bit. But the thing is though, at the state level, the Republicans know They have to rig the game in some states to be able to win. So you're seeing massive voter suppression laws passing all over the country. Right now. That are targeting African American voters and Latino voters. And they are able to pass these because the state legislatures were gerrymandered. In North Carolina, as soon as a Democrat won the governorship, Roy Cooper, you saw the Republican dominated legislature, which only represents about 38, 40 percent of the voters, strip away a lot of his power and take away power from their Supreme Court and take away power from their election authorities.
0: And same in Wisconsin. Same thing.
2: Same thing in Wisconsin. You see in Florida, the independent election boards are being stripped of their authority. So it isn't like we're the only ones that figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> the Republicans figured it out and they're trying to fix the game even more aggressively than just through gerrymandering.
0: So, well, let's talk about then. Um, but th- 2020 is to, to sort of reinforce both your points, though. 2020 turned out all right for Republicans down ballot. Well,
2: uh, you know, I don't know. I think both sides have a lot to cry about.
0: Yeah, but I, I mean, mean I mean down ballot with the Republican majority. I mean, I
1: you know, you look at states like Wisconsin, you look at states like Michigan, Pennsylvania. These are states that we expect, you know, in political science, that a presidential candidate winning those states would have coattails and wow. that down ballot races would ride those coattails. But we don't see that in terms of the outcome. In all of those outcomes, you see the Republicans winning not only, you know, Comfortably, but by huge margins. And it wasn't because they necessarily swept in terms of the votes. The voting was actually really close. It's only because of the way that voters are distributed um, in districts and how the districts are drawn. And they were drawn that way on purpose. And they were drawn that way so that it doesn't matter if Joe Biden wins the election and brings a lot of Democrats out to vote. They were drawn that way so that the Republicans would win regardless.
0: And but and a structural thing is though how there was dissension uh, directed toward the incumbent president in the general election, so that some voters, you all know the voter behavior about splitting the ticket, they could express their dissension on in the Oval Office, but they're going to go back to their party and just enough margins so that the Republicans did better down ticket than the Democrats.
2: Well, I, you know Trump only did worse in some areas than the down-ticket Republicans. And in some areas he did exactly the same and in a few he did a little bit better. So uh, there really was not, there is not a whole lot of ticket splitting anymore. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah,
1: we can go back to the Michigan House of Representatives, for example. Like, Joe Biden won Michigan and he won by, a, you know, it was a small margin, but it was still pretty, pretty definitive. The Democrats, if you take all Democratic candidates, for the Michigan State House, they ended up winning more votes than all Republican candidates. Uh, yet Republicans won 58 out of the 110 seats up for grabs. That was an outcome that was unchanged from t- 2018. Literally the balance of power did not change even though the Democrats won something like two or 3% more of the popular vote uh, in so the votes,
2: Yeah, so the votes shifted dramatically and the seats the representation by seat didn't shift at all as a result of gerrymandering, 100%.
0: So let's talk about that. that There's the one person, one vote that you've talked about in all of your publications. And so that people understand, along with this definition of gerrymandering, is what we're we're seeing is there's a dilution of voters. and, And that will... So the data analytics have made mapping more difficult to challenge. And the Republicans were able to create a partisan advantage in part through drawing majority minority districts that you talk about, which were required by law under the Voting Rights Act. Do you want to bring up how much of data analytics plays a role in just trimming enough, diluting enough, the one person, one vote kind of doctrine?
1: I mean, don't, you, can, you can handle it. Well, I'm happy to respond. Well, uh, I don't even think it, it requires that sophisticated data analytics necessarily. I mean, now, granted, this is the year 2020. So me saying that, you know, the technology we have is like much more advanced and precise than we had in like 1980. But when it comes to one person, one vote, it's a completely different standard when you think about this in terms of political party affiliation as long as the districts are equal in terms of the number of people, then you can sort those people however you like. Now the Supreme Court has said that you can't dilute the votes of a historically disenfranchised minority group, minority communities that are sort of like a community that votes together. You can't do that. But we have evidence through our research that Republicans have done this. In fact, this is how they achieve their advantage is they essentially look for minority voters and they draw minority voters in parts of States uh, where, you know, like urban areas where they tend to vote heavily democratic and they draw them into these very diluted districts that have huge majorities of black or Latinx voters, for example. Um, And they do this because they know this is a way to waste the votes of Democrats to hurt Democrats, because um, you could take a district If you look at the state of Wisconsin, for example, most of the Democrats and most of the African-Americans in the state live around Milwaukee. And it's about that size of a congressional district. And so you could turn it into two majority Black districts, or you could turn it into one majority Black district that wastes a lot of Democratic votes. And that's sort of like the thinking that comes into play when Republican lawmakers are seeking ways to draw the maps in their favor is how do we pack as many African-Americans into a single district without, you know, completely drawing attention to themselves and and asking a court to strike down their map.
2: So to to put it in kind of simple terms for your listeners to visualize, imagine if one district goes Democratic with 75 percent of the vote and three districts go Republican with 57% of the vote each. Well, a 57 to 43 victory is pretty substantial and you're not really gonna be in risk of losing that very often. You can even cut that in half and you would still probably be right. pretty safe. But if you look at the Democratic victory of 75% or whatever you wanna imagine in your example, it's an overwhelming squandering of votes. So it's absolutely sinking millions of Democratic votes in any given state into a a sinkhole of irrelevancy.
0: So it's an optional point, but maybe we could use that as an example for for Ask a Leader local listeners is, California has lost one congressional district. And we know that the incumbent in the 45th congressional district, Katie Porter, in her public forums, and she's talking about whether the line draws further west, further north, or further south, she's going to be bringing in more Republicans into the 45th congressional district. She jokes about if it were to be drawn further east, that's Cleveland National Forest, and that doesn't really change things. But but we could use that as a kind of an example of how that changed line could change the outcome for the 45th congressional district. So,
2: you know, California has this citizens board that, right, that right, laws right. the districts. So typically what happens when a state loses a seat is it doesn't really change their balance of power very much. And part of that is is by design in states where the party with the majority of the congressional districts also controls the state government. And then part of it is also a little bit organic, that if you were going to redraw lines, you wouldn't go to where the districts are all the right size already, you would have to go where, unless you wanted to just redraw the whole map, and in a state as big as California, you don't, you don't want to redraw the whole map. You want to do as little as possible so you don't disrupt uh, citizen's awareness of who their representative is. So what you might get is modest movements. I do think you'll see people talking about the fear of redistricting as a way to raise money and generate funding for their next campaign. But it, it's not obvious to me where the lines will be drawn or who will be lost. Uh, you'd move the line a little bit one way or the other, and harley Roda might be a favorite next time around. You move the line a lot, uh, maybe Katie Porter is an underdog next time around, or you tinker with it a little bit and Katie Porter would be favored and harley Roda would have no chance at reclaiming the seat he just lost. So because we're in a densely populated area, minor tweaks could make a big difference but the people that are doing the tweaking in California are not going to be trying to target a particular politician or party, I don't think.
0: Right, right. And that's the beauty of the independent commission. And that's going to, I'll bring up that uh, independence part as we're talking about fixes and the legislative agendas under consideration federal uh, level. So let's talk about then Are you rethinking, I mean, your book's going out, (laughs) advanced sales are going out right now, but are you reconsidering the prospects of overcoming the bias given the outcomes of 2020 or the the 2020 census? And uh, we talked a little bit about how, I mean, New York is just still reeling about how they lost one congressional district of their total delegation because of 89 noses not counted. So I don't know if there were any Think there was anything about the rollout of the census in its sort of a, the hiccup of the process that was, or of the 2020 election that you would like to say has a bearing on this? And then we'll talk about what the states are up to right now, starting with Georgia. Let me
2: say something very briefly, and I'll turn it over to Alex to, to speak you know, more in depth. And that's the only point I want to make, really, is that the, the sort of gross incompetence the Trump administration had in the census Uh, administration seems to have almost certainly hurt Republicans more than it hurt Democrats. How? Because Texas only got three new seats, I think, or two new seats. They got two new seats. And most people that look at this stuff were expecting them to get three or four. Likewise, there's another deep red state. I guess Florida, we we thought Florida would do better than it did. And there were some losses in red states. So California loses a seat. So the undercounting of Latinos, which was either incompetent or intentional, seems to have hurt Republicans in high growth Latino areas like Arizona and Texas uh, Texas and Florida. Yeah. And Florida. Yeah. So and I'll turn over to Alex for more response to your to your
1: No, I think that's a really good point. And it also speaks to another point, which is that if you just look at the results, Republican states are going to get more seats out of this than Democrats had lost, right? So New York lost a seat. A couple of other Democratic states appear to be losing a seat. Well, there's a couple things to remember here. First of all, just because California or New York loses a seat, that doesn't mean that the Republicans are going to gain from that. You know, maybe Katie Porter's district flips to red. And in that case, what happens is Democrats lost a seat as a result of redistricting. But that's not written in the stars. And the flip side of that is just because Florida gains a new district or Texas gains two new doesn't mean that those are going to be Republican districts. And I'll tell you why. The Republicans in many of these states have already baked in almost as much bias as possible in the congressional maps. In many of these states, there's simply no way to make them more biased. Look at Ohio, for an example. Ohio, when the Republicans and the Democrats split the vote, the Republicans get twelve out of the sixteen seats. There's no way to whittle that down to thirteen out of the sixteen seats. And in fact, Ohio is actually losing a district. And I don't think that Ohio would be able to turn that to a twelve to three advantage for the Republicans, simply because there's nowhere there's no more room to pack Democrats who are about you know a little less than half of the electorate. And the other thing is the reason that these states like Florida or Texas or parts of the Sun Belt are gaining these new seats, are because they're growing faster than the rest of the country. Well, how are they growing? What populations are growing? The these are
0: demographics are, are the Democrats, uh, yeah, right? yeah. these
1: are populations that are by and large, you know, Latino populations that are growing very large and and like Texas. what
0: happened in Nevada.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so in Arizona and pretty much all over the country. And so this is a big problem for the Republicans, just because it appears as though they are gaining seats. And as Tony correctly noted, they probably should be gaining more seats than they actually did, doesn't mean that that's going to help the Republicans. So I think that all of this map rigging speaks to a much bigger issue, which is the sort of white nationalist Republican Party that you know has come to sort of represent the typical white disproportionately male, disproportionately older, disproportionately less educated Republican voter, that's actually a, a losing strategy if you're a political party that wants to compete. The only way to have power is to rig the game. And I think that you know Karl Rove and Republicans 20 years ago saw this writing on the wall. And yep. when they, they couldn't get immigration reform through Congress, even though George Bush, president at the time wanted immigration reform, and their caucus sort of betrayed them and sort of rebelled and, and opposed it, they, they realize there's no way they're going to have a viable party that rules with majoritarian institutions. And so this is this is the alternative for them.
2: And let me let me follow up on something with that. There's kind of an ironic outcome of this. When you gerrymander your state legislatures, what you get are the people who can appeal to the most passionate voters in the primaries to get those state legislative seats because the regular election, the general election isn't competitive. So you're gonna win that one. So all you have to do is get now the Trumpiest Trumpers in Trump land and you're gonna win the primary and then you win the general election if you're the Republicans. The problem with this is get people like uh, Marjorie Greene in Georgia who doesn't seem to know anything about anything so these are the exact kind of folks that might try to go ahead and gerrymander to turn these new seats into an advantage, but then inadvertently lower their own advantage too much. So if I, if I have one Democratic seat and two Republican seats and I'm trying to make that third Democratic seat Republican, so I move Democrats from that one into the two safe seats and take Republicans from the safe seats into the Democratic seat, I might push them all to a tipping point where you can end up with three Democratic seats every bit as easily as you can end up with three Republican seats. So this is a perilous game that the Republicans are stepping into because if they if they gerrymander anymore, those safe Republican seats will become unstable.
0: Wow. Well, that's, but they're, they're definitely, they have the, the resources to, to keep, Tweaking that though, I'm not. I'm, I'm not pulling my popcorn bag out yet.
2: Well, yeah, you know, the thing is, you have to believe experts instead of your your cousin who you're trying to get a big contract to to help be an expert. Um, and uh, you know, just look at vaccine controversies or mass controversies. We are not at a point right now where where that party is particularly embracing competence and expertise as the primary metric. All of right,
0: that's interesting. Success. Good point. Well, um, let's just talk about then their, the legislative measures to what extent they take up the redistricting aspect here, because gerrymandering—it's redistricting part of the whole voting rights sort of domain. So there's the House Resolution One, and there's the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act. How they address redistricting, the two of you, and the that we can and briefly the the I mean there is already lots of discussion about the prospects politically of those moving all the way through the Senate, they passed the the House, but to what extent would they take up redistricting to address these problems.
1: So HR one would require states to establish independent redistricting commissions like California's citizen redistricting commission to draw the congressional district lines. And what that means is and that's
0: congressional. That's in bold font.
1: Yeah, they, it it wouldn't affect how states draw their own lines. And so states, you know, like Michigan or North Carolina, you, you might see a couple seats flip assuming that the commissions would be established and they would draw maps governed by a fair process. So you might see more balanced delegation there. Democrats would probably win, you know, some seats as a result of that. It would not affect the North Carolina General Assembly, however, which uses, you know, delegates the task to itself to draw new district maps for the state legislature. So it wouldn't affect that. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, to my knowledge, it doesn't directly address redistricting, but it addresses voting rights. And it's important because those two concepts are tightly connected because the way that Republican gerrymanderers often gain an advantage is by targeting black voters and by packing black voters into these safe districts. So that might be provide an additional tool to fight that practice, but it also provides a tool to fight the consequences of state governments gerrymandering themselves, which we're seeing unfold all throughout the country like Florida and Texas, And before that, Georgia, where you see state legislatures realizing they could possibly lose. So they want to make sure that Black voters don't get the opportunity to cast votes. They want to make it as difficult as possible for their opponents to participate at the polls. And so all of this is intertwined because you see this type of legislation more often in states that are heavily gerrymandered. And that's actually one of the findings. In chapter six of the book, we find that the state governments that were the most heavily gerrymandered after the 2010 census were more likely to erode voting rights after the 2012 election, and we would expect that trend to continue as well.
0: Yeah, and we're, we are going to, folks, we're going to plot this whole this the long term trajectory. That's our wrap up question. But so, anything more to say about um, there? I mean, those are big pieces of legislation. But any Ch- Tony, did you want to say something about that? Um, no, I
2: think Alex got it exactly right, like, like he normally does. Okay. Um, the uh, What's going to have to happen, regardless of legislation, is higher turnout, higher engagement. And if we know what the rules are, voters can get around them. But one nice outcome from the pandemic may be that the voting public has a greater sense of urgency about whether their government is competent or not. We will see over the next several election cycles if this is a lesson that's learned and kept or if it's a lesson of the moment that's forgotten down the road.
0: Well, as you point out in your book, all four of you, that one of the sort of tactics about gerrymandering is to sort of undermine the democratic process and to disenfranchise a prospective voter, a non-habitual voter, which might be a person, a voter of color.
1: That's right. And, you know, in some ways, this kind of goes back to a debate that we've been having in this country for a long time over who really gets to participate in, in our democracy, who should actually have a say. And you've seen this as like a recurring debate, you know, for over 200 years. In the very beginning, the people who were allowed to vote in, in most congressional elections, at least, were property owning white men. And over time, you know, we've expanded who is eligible to vote, who is allowed to vote. And it's important to situate this within the post-Civil War era, where you have the contestation of Black Americans in democratic politics. And you have this repeated effort, particularly among Southern state legislatures, to deny African Americans the right to vote. And I see gerrymandering as that part of the same sort of conflict, maybe a different tactic, but part of the same conflict that we've seen for over 100 years. And it has to do with who actually is allowed to participate and who should be on the sidelines. And I think that this is this is what gerrymandering speaks to today.
0: So we Here's haven't, we haven't talked much about that. Yes, Tony, what we're going to say, sorry.
2: Uh,
1: I was just going to say
2: that it's one of the most effective ways to disenfranchise voters that Um, any pernicious politician ever came up with.
0: Right. You do it and you do it for 10 years.
2: Yeah. And it works.
0: And it works. So about the judiciary, I want to open up. I mean, I look at lots of these political matters or problems as the passing, meeting the necessary test and the sufficient test. And so we're talking about it's necessary to have a lot of numbers, uh, have a turnout. But in terms of Branches securing the one-person, one-vote and, and uh, avoiding um, the di- undermining, like diluting a vote. That the judiciary—it's been built completely differently since 2017. And if there were measures that were are adopted, there there is a, a pipeline to challenge those measures. And the we, you've already talked about how incrementally the Supreme Court eventually in the judiciary decide not to really weigh in on various challenges to gerrymandering practices. So I guess I'm, this long-winded pitch here is that the Supreme Court doesn't want to weigh in, it doesn't see their role as partisan gerrymandering as being theirs. The, if you want to talk about the RUCO decision of where that leaves us with the composition of the Supreme Court in 2021.
2: Sure. Let me let me just speak to that real quickly. Uh, it isn't that they don't see it as their job, it's that they're cowards. Um, the dishonesty of the justices when they're talking about, oh, gee, how could we ever know if there was partisan gerrymandering? When if you read our book, you see, all you really have to do is division. It isn't even complicated math. This is math that every one of them could do if they balance their checkbooks themselves, which is probably unlikely, um, given, given how well off they all are. But the point is that there was a high level of dishonesty because the folks that are on the court that see the Republican Party as their patron don't want to admit this is a problem for democracy and it's an easily handleable problem. They could simply say you can't do this. Now on, on the other side, you know courts frequently, and the Supreme Court especially, are loath to get involved in things that are going to cause persistent and regular litigation for the predictable future. So they don't like to create more work for themselves. They like to say, you know so let it be written, so let it be done and move on. So, The hope that the court's going to do something about partisan gerrymandering, I wouldn't hold out hope for that. I think they've said pretty clearly they're not going to. And if they didn't before, they're not going to do it this time. One of the lessons might be for Supreme Court justices who believe in democracy, they should step down earlier in their lives and not take the risk that they pass away when somebody who is not as big of a fan of democracy as they are gets to replace them.
0: Alex?
1: Yeah, I mean I second that. I it's I don't really see much hope that the court is going to change anytime soon. Here's the one the one area that it, it could change. In spite of the courts kind of, as Tony suggests, kind of backing off and, and doing nothing about a serious problem like partisan gerrymandering, they were in the last decade at least quite aggressive at battling racial gerrymandering, which is so closely related, but it, it has to do with uh, when the map makers use race as a primary factor in drawing the lines. And it happened in a number of places. And what the Supreme Court did after the 2010 census is it sort of like clarified what the standards were for racial gerrymandering and when it would be impermissible. And that had, you know, a five to four majority. And it stems from a decision in Alabama when the Alabama legislature drew maps that created these super majority minority districts. But in any case, they applied that standard throughout the 2010s. And this was used to roll back gerrymanders in Virginia and North Carolina. And so one of the consequences of you know, the Supreme Court shifting to the right is, are they going to see the problem of racial gerrymandering in the same light as they did in the 2010s? Are they going to be as aggressive at striking down racial gerrymanders as the previous court was? And that's the area where you have to be concerned that Amy Coney Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch are, you know, they, they haven't sort of seen any cases like this on the Supreme Court. And, and it's, it's a big mystery whether they're going to apply the, the rulings of, of the court from a decade ago when they're dealing with racial gerrymandering challenges, which are going to be inevitable.
0: Exactly, so uh, that's, a, that's a big big topic and we'll, we'll plot that with the, the, the final question about the arc we're on, but I, I wanna find out, talk to you in your academic work, your students are one demographic. I wanna know how much they get what's at stake here and who else? What other additional groups you think, to what extent gerrymandering and districting are on people's radars? And I did a little a little crowdsourcing, and I I just asked an individual, and she really wasn't sure. She says, "I remember hearing about gerrymandering in my AP American History course." So this is a this is a topic that's not. It's not having enough traction, but what are you finding at least in your student groups? Are they onto this? Are they on it because they finished your courses?
2: So uh, here's here's an interesting thing about it is students by and large self-select into classes. So they're interested in the class that they would never sign up for unless it's required. Um, Alex and I both draw a fair number of students that are interested in law and going to law school or politics and going into politics. So I think we find our students are highly engaged in it. And this is one of the reasons that they're taking our classes. If you go out to the larger political consumer class, the folks that are reading political blogs or looking at the newspaper every day or watching TV every day or checking social media or following politicians on Twitter, what you tend to get is that same kind of self-selection that a student might do because they're interested in a class, but we tend now in large part because of social media to pick news outlets that say things we already agree with. So, if so there's you're an Republican, echo chamber.
0: Yeah.
2: Right, you get into an echo chamber. So if you're a Republican watching Fox News, this doesn't come up at all. You would never think it was a real problem. If you are a Democrat who is a big believer in voting rights and you watch MSNBC, you're going to see it regularly. So there isn't really a quick answer on are people engaged in gerrymandering. It's a bit like when the Supreme Court said they know pornography, they know it when they see it, they don't know how to define it. Engagement with gerrymandering, I don't exactly know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. So people that are interested in it tend to be very interested in it and people that are more interested in other issues climate change health care income inequality these other things they get interested in gerrymandering when they see that there is a connection to the policy outputs so the political inputs cause the policy output and gerrymandering is the vehicle through which those political inputs are conveyed
1: well i think that tony's right i think that you have to make the concept of gerrymandering concrete in some way and personal in some way and the kids who are taking AP US history they read these things in books and it seems like an abstract concept and maybe they're not even
0: voting yet yeah
1: (laughs) and the other thing you know when I was in California teaching I think that there's this general sense that what goes on back east is confusing and wacky and it doesn't make sense and it's frustrating and so often California is like left out of the conversation So often, California is sort of like an afterthought. When you're listening to the news, it's like it's on the other side of the continent and everything is dictated by New York City and Chicago. But my experience moving to Virginia and being here when there was a big grassroots reform effort to change how Virginia drew the lines was that grassroots efforts, this organization, mobilization campaigns... They really do help. And I noticed, I came here in 2016 and I've been teaching here ever since. I noticed that the students were coming into my introductory American government classes and increasingly understood the concept of gerrymander because it was something that was talked about as a political issue, it was something that people were talking about. And they understood, they had at least like some sort of instinct for the the fairness and unfairness of how district lines could be drawn. And so I think that like, Part of the solution is just sort of talking about it and having groups such as the groups that we see all across the country now, common cause, fighting and working to spread awareness about how gerrymandering affects people on an individual level. And it seemed to work in Virginia. I wasn't around in California in 2008 when the ballot initiative was put on. But it seems like that's probably the best way to do this is just to keep fighting and just keep talking about it. And it actually eventually does result in more people kind of understanding concept because it's a basic concept that's not really hard to explain once you break it down.
0: Well, why aren't, it's a clear, I think, way to explain it is just show the number of votes cast by one party versus the other party and show the outcome of how the parties shake out in terms of how many districts they win in. Just the, those numbers, those percentages, shouldn't Bonnie, that make the case? Are we, who are we showing this to? Well, I'm just trying to think it's, I, my, my like, are you fantasy about is- public, Are you talking about public
2: engagement?
0: In terms of just the broader public, somebody who shows yeah. up on CNN, so, not, the, not the banner that flies up and down the beaches during spring break, but I always think about that banner though. Here,
2: here, here's the thing, um, Republican voters the latest polling shows about 70% of them don't think Joe Biden actually won the presidency. So to expect that we could just show the truth and somehow people would drop their partisan limbs isn't, really isn't really going to work likely. So,
0: But there's even a larger number, though, that are affected by this that would be listening to that message if they just saw that. Well, if if they don't
2: vote now, why are they, you know, it's hard to think that you're going to engage them by talking about how bad the vote was split.
1: Well, the other piece of this is what the one of the reasons that it worked in Virginia, where we actually established redistricting reforms. It's the only example in the history of our country where a state legislature voluntarily gave away its power. And that is because the Republicans realized that if they didn't sign on with reform, the Democrats were gonna have the chance to gerrymander. And so there was this moment where both parties saw it in their interest to do this because the Democrats knew that if, you know, they might not be able to gerrymander to the same extent that Republicans do. And so you have to find a way to tell Republicans it's in your interest not to have gerrymandering. And so- so
0: it was a defensive reflex on that count, but everything else is offense. Right. So the last question, which one of you, if both of you want to plot the trend, where we are on a graph of where this is going as democratic values are upheld?
1: Tony, I'm going to leave this one
2: for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think, as has been said, uh, we're at a crossroads. To the right is utter devastation and misery, and to the left is perhaps the end of the world. (laughs) So the problem we have is this gerrymandering gets fixed in 10 year blocks. And it has to be a big problem when there are not other very big problems that overwhelm the public's attention to it. Yes. So I'm not sure we're in the right moment in time to really address this. My optimism though, is that the Republican party is inching closer to open warfare Between what you might think of as classical Republicans, the Cheneys, the Bushes, those kind of folks.
1: The um, The Romneys.
2: Who the Romneys who have actual a roster of principles that they believe in and try to shape policy around, versus the Trumpers in the party, their principle is adoration of Donald Trump. And they have some very mild principles. They don't seem to like immigrants. They don't seem to like China, even if there aren't immigrants affiliated with their dislike. But there don't seem to be like policy structures around that. So if I'm in the camp of classic Republicans who have a roster of policies we claim we care about, I might want to get rid of gerrymandering because it would make the is more competitive and the general election more competitive and the winning candidate would have to appeal to a median voter of some sort or at least a median voter within the party. Right now, because of the state level gerrymandering, you only really have to appeal to the extremists to prevail. So the question is, will the Republicans clean house and make their own campaigns competitive so that they can have a party running on principle or are they going to abdicate to the cult of personality that some would like it to become?
0: So that instead of dilution of a particular part of the electorate, maybe dilution of an extremist part of the party? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, you've been very generous with your time. I want to thank you both for being on Ask a Leader today.
1: Thank you so much, Claudia. We appreciate it. Oh, I just thank you for having me. I always enjoy this. And I hope you're having a, a nice May out there in Southern
0: California. We are. It's been a little colder than normal, but lovely otherwise. We look thank forward to doing this again. Thank you very much. My guests were political scientist Alex Keena from the Virginia Commonwealth University and Tony Smith, professor of political science at UC Irvine. About their work, the title is Gerrymandering the States. Partisanship, race, and the transformation of American federalism. Well, that's my wrap for next week's show. Ellen Mackey and a tradesperson with the Metropolitan Water District will return for how their agency's performing of late. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Vaccines, they're quite available awaiting your extended arm.